0: What this extraordinary reporting reveals uh, is something, actually, it builds on what we already knew, that we had a crazy, delusional, authoritarian, dangerous, criminal president of the United States. And we knew it through all four years of his presidency, and what's happening in this book and a couple of others, and probably more to come, is we are now seeing that picture filled out and our worst fears fulfilled through actual specific acts and words of the horror and terror that this deranged president of the United States visited upon our country, the Constitution, uh, and our system of governance. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. Deprived of his precious
1: Twitter feed, Donald Trump must now communicate his lies and grievances through electronic mail. His pronouncement... Posted on Save America letterhead, by and large, fall into a few buckets marked by their penchant for disinformation, petty revenge, or deranged delusion, sometimes all at once. But now and again, the truth inadvertently slips through the cracks, and you could glean through morsel of insight into the broken machinery that exists to pop up Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, I know, even a broken clock is right twice a day. But this is more like the experiment where you put a thousand chimpanzees in a room with typewriters. Eventually, you'll get fucking Shakespeare. (laughs) I say all of this because yesterday, around 1249 EST... Trump served up a real prize. Yet another piece of explosive
2: reporting revealing the chaos inside Trump's White House in his final months, weeks, days
1: in office. In recent days, he's grown increasingly agitated over an unceasing wave of incriminating stories detailing his disastrous final days in office. And don't worry, we're going to list them all because the best of them truly portrays Trump for what he has always been, a fraud, a bully, And most of all, a dangerous lunatic, unworthy of the office that he once bestowed.
2: They write that after seeing the riot unfold, Trump's own White House counsel feared Trump could be brought up on charges. Quote, the afternoon of January 6th, it started dawning on the White House counsel and his deputies that Trump could conceivably be charged with a crime for setting off that deadly riot.
1: There aren't books he can just wave away as fake news. The best of them, Michael Bender's Frankly, I Didn't Win This Election, along with Philip Rucker and Carol Lennox, I Alone Can Fix It, were written by veteran and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists who have spent years, if not decades, reporting on politics. This isn't Breitbart with some 24-year-old douchebag channeling Steve Bannon making up shit on the fly.
2: Any good prosecutor would closely examine what the president, Donald Trump Jr., Rudy Giuliani, and others had said specifically at that rally. They could be accused of sedition, a charge not leveled at a president in a century.
1: In addition, Trump let these people interview him at Mar-a-Lago. He sat for 17, yeah, 17 separate interviews. As much as he hates the mainstream press or calls them the enemy of the people, there is nothing that he fucking craves more than their approval. Let's just say he wants and believes that he can charm and bullshit these writers. In his mind, each of these books is about Donald Trump, and he'll somehow be able to control the narrative if they were each the art of the deal. Instead, he has opened himself up to all manner of ridicule, Forget about the emperor having no clothes. Trump appears in these books stark fucking naked with his mushroom-shaped pecker flapping in the breeze for all to see. Break some veins! Break oh some veins! These books are driving him fucking insane, and they're all coming at it once, and the shit that's being written is not
0: just bad, it's catastrophic, and it's all fucking true. What these books do is that they enlarge on the picture, that we have already known about Donald Trump throughout the four years. This is not about delusional in the, in the final days. He has been delusional, out of control, uh, deranged, according. And again, this I remember the first time I came on the air and said uh, that members of Congress, Senate leaders are depicting Trump, and this was in the first year of Trump's presidency, depicting Trump as crazy. This was in the first year. So we shouldn't be surprised at these revelations, rather they build on what we have known all along about Donald Trump and how unfit he is for the presidency.
1: So he released a statement yesterday that was the most truthful thing that he had said in years. And I quote, nobody ever heard of some of these people that worked for me in DC. All of a sudden, the fake news starts calling them. Some of them feel emboldened, brave and for the first time in their lives they feel like something special not the losers that they are and they talk, 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 talk Many say I'm the greatest star maker of all time but some of the stars I've produced are actually made of garbage i go home and get your fucking shine box I met most of these people at one point or another and many of them are truly made of garbage dipped in shit but those aren't the folks he's referring to now, is he? They're only made of garbage if the information is unflattering. Speaking of which, let's look at the books. Around the time Trump's statement went out on Thursday, a new excerpt from I Alone Can Fix It revealed that he reportedly needed three takes for his infamous January 6th video, what Trump called violent insurrectionists, very special, before the video was removed and he was banned from all of the major social media platforms. We love you. You're very special. Trump's video came hours after the Capitol was breached and amid repeated pleas from the White House aides, including his own daughter Ivanka, for the then president to call on his supporters to leave the building and stop the violence. Trump's praise for the
3: insurrectionists drew widespread backlash. But this morning there are calls for President Trump to once again be impeached or, and we do not say this lightly... For the cabinet to invoke the 25th amendment removing him from office because he is unfit according to our sources the president for his part is still quote clueless about how outraged and i would add heartsick americans were as they watched the violence unfold yesterday we love you you're very
1: special trump said you've seen what happens you see the way others are treated that are so bad and so evil i know how you feel but go home and go home in peace i know your pain I know you're hurt. It's a very tough period of time. There's never been a time like this where such a thing happened, where they could take it away from all of us, from me, from you, from our country. While recording the video, Trump kept veering off the script his speechwriters had prepared, according to the book. The version released was the most palatable option, Rucker and Lenig wrote. That's mild compared to what preceded that revelation everything from trump's admiration of adolf hitler to his desire to find and execute the staffer who leaked that he was taken to the white house bunker to hide during the george floyd protests to his desire that the military go out and crack the skulls of civil rights protesters i don't know about the hitler comparison i hadn't heard that But it's a terrible comparison. I'm not happy about that, certainly. I don't want that comparison. General Mark Milley's fears that former President Donald Trump would launch a Nazi-style coup to retain his grip on power has been widely reported in recent days. But Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had also prepared for another nightmare scenario that could serve as Trump's so-called Reichstag moment.
3: Also this morning, a top U.S. general's bombshell comments about former President Trump. General Mark Milley saying he feared Trump would stage a coup following his election loss. Trump desperately
1: wanted to launch airstrikes against Iran, and in fact, came very close to starting a war in the Middle East. Second largest country, according to a report from the New Yorker's Susan B. Glasser, who conducted more than 200 interviews for a book about the Trump presidency that will be published next year. Trump had a circle of Iran hawks around him and was close with the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was also urging the administration to act against Iran after it was clear that Trump had lost the election. If you do this, you're going to have an effing war, Milly would say. This dangerous post-election period, Milly said, was all because of Trump's Hitler-like embrace of the big lie that the election had been stolen from him. Milly feared it was Trump's Reichstag moment in which like Adolf Hitler in 1933 He would manufacture a crisis in order to swoop in and rescue the nation from it, Glasser reports.
3: When I first learned about the level of alarm that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs had uh, through the election and all the way into January, I have to say it was probably the most terrified I've ever been as a reporter in several decades. On the one hand, I suppose it should be reassuring. Right. There is uh, a group of people who were determined that the Constitution, that the independence of our institutions would hold. On the other hand, they perceived the president of the United States to be the greatest national security threat at that time to the United States.
1: For those hearing this and wondering what the fuck. Let me remind you that I warned of this very scenario two years ago when I spoke before the House Oversight Committee before the representative and late Elijah Cummings. Given my experience working for Mr. Trump, I fear that if he loses the election in 2020, that there will never be a peaceful transition of power. And this is why I agreed to appear before you today. General Mark Milley may just be the unsung hero of the Trump administration. For all the talk of a resistance of there being adults in the room, it was Millie
0: who stood his ground and prevented some truly horrible shit from happening. And as Millie himself has now raised the question of neo-fascism, Trumpism as neo-fascism, he has raised the question in the language of brown shirts. We didn't do it here on the air. The general, the joint chiefs, the head of the joint chiefs has done this. We need to take this moment and say, how did we get to a place where the leader of the American military compared the president of the United States to Hitlerian fascism? We didn't say it. He did. This is a moment. That's the importance of this book and perhaps the importance of some of the other books. According
1: to Mark Bender's excellently reported, frankly, we did win this election, Trump wanted the military to deploy into American cities to stop the George Floyd
3: protests last summer. Particularly as about our summer of protests in the streets He writes, quoting the president here, that's how you're supposed to handle these people, Trump told his top law enforcement and military officials. Crack their skulls. Trump also told his team that he wanted the military to go in and beat the expletive out of the civil rights protesters, Bender writes, just shoot them. Trump said on multiple occasions inside the Oval Office, according to the excerpts.
1: Milley made a concerted effort to stay in Washington as much as possible during those final months. A significant concern for Milley at the time was how to advise Trump if he decided to invoke the Insurrection Act in the wake of civil unrest, a move that would have military force on the streets against civilians. Ultimately, Trump never invoked the Insurrection Act, but repeatedly suggested doing so during the end of his tenure, putting Milley and former Defense Secretary Mark Esper in a complicated situation each time. The the tension that that was there with the military, which does not believe
2: that its role is to, to, you know, to to be in the streets of American cities uh, enforcing the law, uh, was a huge friction point between this White House and this, this past White House and the Pentagon, and so I think you're seeing in these excerpts, you know, a, a bit of the uh, the backstory of what was really going on there. We we had a Commander in Chief who was basically, uh, uh, you know, at uh, uh, which to end to to, to 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 crack down, as you will, on on, on protesters, both violent and peaceful. Uh, And and a military that was resisting it in the form of General Kelly, sorry, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff.
1: Both Milley and Esper were deeply opposed to the idea when Trump first suggested it last June, following protests against police brutality and racial injustice in the wake of George Floyd's death. According to Bender, Milley viewed the unrest around Floyd's death as a political problem, not a military one. In a particularly telling moment, Millie pointed to a photo of Abraham Lincoln hanging in the West Wing. That guy had an insurrection, Millie said. What well, we have, Mr. President, is a protest.
3: The memory of George Floyd is being dishonored by rioters, looters, and anarchists. The violence and vandalism is being led by Antifa and other radical left-wing groups who are terrorizing
1: the innocent, destroying jobs... Hurting businesses and burning down buildings. After the election, Trump's blustery rhetoric turned into action when he fired Esper and installed loyalists at the Pentagon, raising Milley's fears that Trump or his allies could try to attempt a coup to overturn the election results. According to Lenigan and Rucker, Milley was shaken by the
3: threat of a coup and felt he had to be on guard for what might come. Quote, they may try, but they're not going to expletive succeed Indeed, he told them, you can't do this without the military. You can't do this without the CIA and the FBI, we're the guys with the guns.
1: Milley and the rest of the Joint Chiefs informally planned for what they would do in the event of an order they deemed illegal dangerous or ill-advised according to a proposal to resign one by one rather than carry out the orders.
3: The book also details the exchange between Milley and Pelosi on January 8. Remember, that's two days after the attempt to overthrow our election. And we quote, Pelosi reminded Milley of the oath he swore to the Constitution and asked him to review precautions for preventing an unstable president from initiating war by ordering a nuclear strike. Ma'am, I guarantee you that we have checks and balances in the system, Millie told her. He walked her through the process of nuclear release authorities. Ma'am, I guarantee you these processes are very good, he said. There's not going to be an accidental firing of nuclear weapons. After the
1: January 6th attack, Milley and the entire Joint Chiefs of Staff issued a statement condemning the sedition and insurrection of the rioters who breached the Capitol and attacked police officers. Milley focused his efforts on ensuring there was a ring of steel around the city for the January 20th inauguration of President Joe Biden, according to Lennigan-Rucker. We're going to put a ring of steel around the city and the Nazis aren't getting in, Milley said.
3: Where after January 6th and Milley has seen the insurrection, he is now preparing for the inauguration with other law enforcement officials, with the National Guard at Fort Meyer. And he is so worried that there is going to be another violent attack by Trump supporters that he says to the other senior advisors, quote, Here's the deal, guys. These guys are Nazis. They're Boogaloo boys. They're Proud Boys. These are the same people we fought in World War II. Everyone in this room, whether you're a cop, whether you're a soldier, we're going to stop these guys to make sure we have a peaceful transfer of power.
1: What absolutely flabbergasts me is that Trump hadn't been somehow disqualified for running from office for what happened. I don't care if the GOP lacks the political will because they fear their own base. Facts are fucking facts. This stuff cannot be dismissed by Trump. But he's still out there riling up his base, getting ready for round two.
3: My name is Why. My name is My name is Name Why? My name is Why. My name is Why. My name is Excuse Why? My name is Why. Excuse me. Can I have the attention of the class? For one second.
1: And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa, Michael Smirkanish, began his political career at the age of 29, working as a staffer for then-President George Herbert Walker Bush. Since those early days, he has become one of the preeminent voices of American talk radio and an island of centrist sanity in what has become a sea of growing extremism on the air. He is the host of the eponymously titled Smirkanish, which airs Saturdays on CNN and is the host of the daily Michael Smirconish program on Sirius XM. He has authored seven books, two are New York Times bestsellers, and his novel Talk was optioned for television by Warner Brothers. His latest book is titled Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, American Life in Columns. Clowns is a compilation of 100 newspaper columns, each with a contemporary afterword Drawn from the 1,047 commentaries Smirkanish published in the Philadelphia Daily News and Sunday Philadelphia Inquirer in the first 15 years following 9-11. The book gave rise to a speaking tour dubbed American Life in Columns, featuring the author sharing stories from the book with live audiences in two dozen small theaters all across America. When the pandemic hit in March of 2020, Smirkanish was about to embark on a new tour called Things I Wish I Knew Before I Started Talking, a one-man show commemorating his 30th anniversary in talk radio. He joins me today on Mea Culpa in the wake of Trump's insane CPAC appearance and the frightening revelations that continue to pour from a steady stream of books about the Trump presidency. So let's listen now to that conversation. You recently had Jeff Greenfield on your Sirius XM radio show to discuss his latest piece for Politico, which was about the Democratic Party's seeming inability to fight back against the current Republican onslaught, especially on voting rights at the state and local levels. Now, this is despite winning the White House, Congress, and the Senate, albeit by slim majorities. But I'm curious in your opinion, what you feel... Um, The disconnect is that is preventing President Biden and the Democrats from pushing back against the GOP. So you're very well
2: prepared. I uh, congratulate you for that. It's true. Jeff is a, a favored guest of mine. And the line that stands out from the interview, and I think it was mine, not his, after listening to him, was that I quoted the late, great Al Davis, the owner of the Oakland Raiders just win, baby, because. Jeff Greenfield was going through a variety of scenarios as to what can the Democrats do to advance the ball and pretty much said outside of reconciliation, outside of a budgetary framework, they've got to win elections because otherwise they've got this 50-50 deadlock, the presence of the filibuster, the president's unwillingness, at least at present, to challenge the filibuster And unless something significant changes, President Biden will be able to advance an economic agenda, but he's not going to get things done on, say, guns or immigration or LGBTQ rights. And I thought that Jeff was was right. And uh, to answer your question more specifically, um, it's divided government. Despite the fact that they have the White House, despite the fact that they have the House and uh, a, a tie in the Senate, It takes more than that because of these arcane rules of the Senate to really get things done. And the final thing I'll say is it sets up a situation where for the midterm elections, there'll be a limited number
1: of things that the Biden White House can rightfully claim to have accomplished. Yeah, I mean, this is going to seriously mar his, you know, potential presidential, um, you know, term period. My question to you. Is not just it goes more than just the disconnect that you know is preventing Biden from doing things and pushing back. My my question that I was really hoping you were going to touch on is why is he not using the executive order power, something that Trump had really perfected. I mean, Trump didn't want to deal with Congress. He didn't want to deal with the House or the Senate. he didn't care. it was all done by executive order. Now, I know there are certain things that cannot be done by executive order, but for the most part, I think most things can. So why is he not just utilizing the same things that worked for Trump?
2: Well, I think he has i mean i I think that he's been very aggressive at least in those first couple of weeks in the White House in using the executive order. My question is why doesn't he decide, I'm not advocating this, but if I were Joe Biden, I'd be saying, I have limited time on the clock. In all probability, I am a one-term president because of my age. And I really have only up until the midterm, because who knows, if history repeats itself, then Republicans will take control of the House of Representatives. I'm dubious as to whether Republicans can take control of the Senate, because I think that the the Democrats have easier seats to defend in the Senate, but history says that Republicans will pick up the handful that they need to control the house. So if I'm Joe Biden, that clock is ticking and as much of a traditionalist as I might be, because I served in the Senate for four decades, I have to think long and hard about advocating to get rid of the filibuster and going full bore in that direction so that I can achieve all these things, not through executive order, but so that they will be long-lasting. Because as you well know, anything he does through executive order can be undone by uh, you know, President DeSantis in just two years. Yeah,
1: well, let me tell you, I don't believe that DeSantis is going to be president. Weekday mornings, the story begins in California. The Times, a daily news podcast from the Los Angeles Times gives you a West Coast perspective on the story shaping policy and opinion. Join host Gustavo Arellano and a diverse range of voices every weekday morning as they cover the critical issues like only a team reporting from California can. From immigration to income inequality, climate change to racial justice, nativism to technology. The Times explores the contradictions and hard truths of the Golden State and the nation through a West Coast perspective. Through interviews and original stories, The Times, daily news from the Los Angeles Times, is the podcast you need to understand the world and how California shapes it. Because if an issue that's in California isn't in your town yet, chances are it will be soon. Expect award-winning reporting, hard-hitting investigations, and L.A. eccentricities from the biggest newspaper west of the Mississippi. New episodes of The Times are available every weekday. To listen and subscribe, go wherever you get your podcast and search for The Times, daily news from The L.A. Times. I do agree with you, Mike, that he did... A handful if not more of executive orders the first few weeks but we're now six months into his into his presidency and he held back on in my opinion a lot of executive orders and he's allowing the republicans to basically run roughshod over him and they're going to end up causing you know his presidency to be like a lame duck What else can he do? He's not going to be able to sit down with the likes of a Mitch McConnell and try to get McConnell to agree that, for example, the COVID relief package is a good idea and that it was needed for this country. They will never agree simply because Mitch McConnell, like the obstinate asshole that he is, turned around from day number one and he said, nothing that you try to accomplish, I'm going to support what are you doing to those circumstances? Unless
2: Manchin, Cinema, Tester and others are willing to rewrite the filibuster rules, I don't think there's much that he can do. And I'll give you a great example that's top of mind for me. President Biden came to the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia this week and excoriated Republicans on the whole voting rights issue and what's afoot in Texas and what has taken place in Georgia and so on and so forth. He didn't even mention, as I, as I said on my own program, he refused to drop the F-bomb. He didn't even use the word filibuster in his prepared remarks. Everybody agreed that he was very much on point, that he gave a very fiery speech. But I thought that was to placate the very progressive elements of his own party. And if he really were out there campaigning to do what's necessary, he'd be in West Virginia, he'd be in Montana, he'd be in Arizona, and he'd be making a full-scale campaign to change the rules. And he's not doing it. It's almost as if he's resigned to the fact that there are these limitations, and only through reconciliation is he going to be able to achieve things legislatively. One other thought, if I may, Don't, let's not undersell what Joe Biden has going for him, and therefore going for Democrats Uh, headed into the midterm. There's wind at their back because we're coming out of this pandemic, notwithstanding what's going on with this uh, Delta variant. And I, I think by being the incumbent, and by the way, your old boss may be deserving of more credit than he's getting for Operation Warp Speed and the development of the vaccine, but Biden is in office. And much like the stock market where we give you the credit or we give you the blame, whether you deserve it or not, I think Biden will be the beneficiary of an economy that's getting back on its feet and people taking off their masks and resuming life as we know
1: it. Yeah, well, Trump should get there should be an acknowledgement that he basically wiped out all restrictions for the pandemic um, relief in terms of the vaccination. He absolutely did. But where he screwed up was the package To send it out in order to get it into the arms of American citizens. That's where he absolutely failed in the in the distribution plan. He just basically said, "Okay, let's reach out to CVS. Let's reach out to Dwayne Reed. And, you know, everybody everybody has a Dwayne Reed or CVS near them. Let just people go there." That's not the way that it worked, and that's why at the beginning, even after the vaccination became available, so few people had received the vaccination. So, but you're right as far as the development of it, I do give him credit for it. You know, That's one of the problems we also have in the media. The left doesn't want to give Trump any acknowledgement for anything. Now, there were some things that I would say that he certainly did that I would agree with. But for the most part, while even his message was accurate and fair and reasonable, as the messenger, he was just the wrong guy. And it was the way that he went about doing it that I think created, you know, the bigger problems in this country. Um, But, you know, moving on, uh, Mike, you know, based on President Biden's speech calling this voting rights onslaught, 21st century Jim Crow and the most dangerous threat to voting and integrity of free and fair elections in our history. Why won't he push to end the filibuster and stop all of this nonsense once and for all? I mean, he has a solution right in front of his nose, but he seems afraid to use it. Would you discuss this with my listeners? If he really believes
2: that this is Jim Crow redux, if he really believes that this is the the greatest challenge to democracy that the country has faced, I think he said, since the Civil War, or words to that effect, then it follows that you would have to oppose the filibuster as it currently exists. But he won't do that. So it, it causes me to question whether he really believes that. Look, my own view is that I think that Republicans are trying to shave points. I think that Republicans are trying to give themselves an advantage in small doses in each of these states. I have to say that when you look at some of these laws by their component parts, I don't know that they're deserving of the global reputation that they've been ascribed. I mean, Georgia and the water issue being a great example. Take a look at New York law. Take a look at Delaware law. There's, there is a reason why you don't want people approaching folks who are already standing in line. I've said that the real issue to me is why are we 3rd worldish? Why is any American standing in line to vote for a period of, of hours? But the the totality of what is being done in these states, yeah, I think it could be outcome determinative in the next election. I personally am for making it easier for people to vote and making sure that the election
1: is protected. And I think you can do both. Well, how? In other words, if people don't have to physically go to a location to vote, technically what you're saying is that you should be able to do it on your handheld or on your computer from home. That's what you're saying, correct?
2: I don't think it'll come to that in my lifetime. I wish that it would. I'm able to bank. I'm able to pay bills, make reservations, all the things that, that we all do, call an Uber, go to open table and make a dinner reservation. I wish I could vote online, but I'm, I'm convinced that there won't be a, a sense of uh, security and uh, confidence that will enable that. No, what I'm talking about are, are things like voter ID, which I think the Democrats have relented on since Joe Manchin said that was important to him, even Stacey Abrams came around on that issue. My view is that it's perfectly reasonable to ask of someone to show an ID, so long as you're asking for the form of identification that people in whatever that community is possess. And if it's in the inner city, hard for a lot of suburbanites to understand, but there are many folks who just don't drive and don't have a driver's license. Okay, let's find an alternative that they can show. So we could be reasonable, and I think we could also button up the process in ways that would give everybody a better feeling. And we don't do it. Why? I think we don't do it because people are so dug in uh, on opposite sides of of this particular issue. I mean, Republicans push the envelope too far. They'll say, well, you know, a a gun permit is acceptable, but not a college identification. And Democrats view this as as a form of outright suppression, no matter what that might be. And there's no middle ground as a result. I mean, this is a a part of my much bigger narrative as to what ails the country. Uh, And in short form, it is that too much influence has been given to individuals who have microphones and that many who are somewhere in the middle have ceded the ground of the debate to the loudest
1: voices. You know, for me, some of the things that I thought of that would be very helpful where you wouldn't even need an ID at all. How about like a, a a palm print? Right, when I go to the hospital and I go to check in, I don't I don't touch a pen anymore. All I do is I put my hand on a scanner and it goes ahead and it has all my information and basically then I just sign on the on the dotted line on the on the screen, on the computer screen. Why can't we do something like that? Well, the reason is people turn around and say, "Well, now you have my palm print. Now you have information right. on me that Maybe I don't want you to have. Okay, me personally, I don't care. The hospital that I go to has my palm print. Okay, what are you going to do with it? I don't know. And if something happens, I'll figure it out later. I don't have that conspiratorial, you know, mindset that I don't that Everything no, I, that I, everything I, I, is I going either. to be held. The very, the very, the very people who want
2: you to have to have a photo ID to vote are the ones who who get completely undone by the idea that let's put a photograph on everybody's social security card and call that your ID. Oh, no, we don't want a national ID. To your point, there are a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of hypocrisy. And frankly, I think both sides are, are asking themselves, rather than asking, well, is this a fair and equitable way to achieve our purpose? The first question they ask is, Which side benefits, my side
1: or the other side, and then they fall into line? Yeah, and that's not a that's not the proper way to run a government right we've all seen and this is some of my favorite stuff that's done on CNN MSNBC and even Fox and so on it it really is some of my favorite thing they take the same individual 10 years ago making a statement and then they show that individual today making a statement which is absolutely 100% contradictory to the statement he made 10 years ago because his party was in power And it just makes me laugh because everybody has to be watching this and saying the same thing. That you're a fucking hypocrite. That we know what you're doing. It's not funny. You're an employee of the United States government. You work for the people. These people voted you into power. Not for you to turn around and to flip-flop based upon whatever political party happens to be in power and what you're trying to achieve it's to benefit the country these people that sit there and they say to themselves holy shit i can't allow the democrats to get away with it because then the 2022s are going to go to the democrats and stay with them because they're achieving something you're right let's burn the fucking country down but we want it to fail so that our party can come in and try to refix it this is not a way to run a country Well, our differences used to end at the water's edge, right? We would fight about things almost
2: like a a couple that has a domestic squabble. But when somebody shows up on the porch, they then turn on that person. We used to be that way. We would turn on the Soviet Union. We would turn on China because, after all, we were Americans at our core. But when the pandemic is the subject of polarization, when wearing a mask becomes the subject of a partisan divide, Something big has changed,
1: and it's changed for the worse. And then what do, we do to, what do we do to fix it? What do we do to get somebody like Mitch McConnell willing to sit down with Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer and all, all of them together? So that they can actually yeah, I don't accomplish, think that happens. right? But they need to accomplish things. I mean, the American people right now are suffering the economic disparity, the divide between rich and poor. By the way, the the disparity between rich and wealth is really now something significant. When you have people that are worth two hundred billion dollars, right, and then you have somebody who doesn't have money to. To have a roof over their head. I mean, the economic divide has just exploded in this country, and our and our government is not doing anything in order to ensure that at least people have the basic needs, right? A home, but Michael, medical. Michael, Michael, but, but but you're assuming that there's that
2: there's a drive on the part of these elected officials for legislative achievement. And what's changed in the three decades that I've been paying close attention? is that that's no longer the objective. The objective now is re-election. They get to that town and they want to stay in that town. It used to be that you'd get elected, bide your time, you would establish some seniority and get a good legislative assignment, and then you would try and pass legislation so that you could run on a record of things that you had accomplished. But today, all it requires is to be a, a social media bomb thrower, Get a lot of attention on the left or on the right. You become a social media phenom. You can raise a boatload of money, get on cable television, and then you get reelected. I mean, my God, look at someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene. Every time we think she puts her foot in her mouth, she raises a boatload of money. And that's so emblematic, I think, of, of what's wrong with the system. They're in, they're in town Tuesday through Thursday on roughly a school calendar. No one has a cocktail with someone from the other side of the aisle. You no longer bring your spouse and move the kids into the local schools. Instead, they get out of Dodge as soon as they can. And it becomes much easier to demonize someone that you don't know, especially if you don't know them socially. And so that's the climate that we've created. And the people who are holding the real power are not the heads of the RNC or the DNC, It's media figures whose objective, their objective, is simply to stir the pot, pit both sides against one another and boost ratings. So the politicians want to stick around and the people to whom they're following or paying attention to simply want mouse
1: clicks and eyes and ears. That's it. And it's amazing that somebody could run that their platform is that I voted with Donald Trump or I voted for the impeachment against Donald Trump. That's truly to me an amazing platform for somebody to be running on on both sides of the spectrum. Well, we have we have an interesting
2: situation in Pennsylvania uh, coming up in the midterm where for the first time in quite some time we have an open governor's mansion and we have an open senate seat. Tom Wolf is is not able to run for a third term, Pat Toomey is not going to run for an additional term and it's kind of funny to your point to watch the dance that Republican candidates are going through, because on one hand, they need to pledge allegiance to Donald Trump to survive a primary. And yet if they go too far in in their fealty to him, then they're dooming themselves in a in a general election. But yes, I mean, that's true. That's that that's what defines candidates today is where they stand relative to your former boss.
1: Yeah. Boy, did I really create one fucking hell of a Frankenstein's monster, huh? (laughs) <laughs> it's so just
2: ch- yes, and by the way can I say can I say you were quite a pain in the ass on his behalf because your listeners should know that my first interactions with you were when you were an attack dog for him I I had only my recollection is I had only a couple of years under my belt doing a Saturday morning program on CNN and I was always fascinated with the prospect of a of a Trump campaign and I was Disclosure totally dismissive of this thing having any possibility of success. Uh, I knew and know Roger Stone. I would have those conversations with him privately. And then when I would say things on air reflecting my view that this was all bullshit, you would be the guy
1: who'd be on my doorstep. Because I was sent to your doorstep by individual number <laughs> one, also known as Donald <laughs> J. Trump. You see, Trump would also turn around and tell the world that he has the thickest skin. I have the thickest skin in the world. Nothing bothers me. It's not true. He is the most fragile individual I've ever met in my entire life. The fact that you have a Saturday morning program, and I used to watch it all the time. And we, after a while, but I think to be fair to my listeners also, I wasn't only just an attack dog. We've had some fun conversations over over Absolutely. the years, even before sure. I had my yeah. transformation and, and being on my redemption tour. But one of the things that he would say is, "Michael, did you see this guy Smirkanish?" And I said, "Actually, I did, boss, because I was required." to also watch and read everything in the event that he was going to bring it up the next day. And there were some things that were said that I knew with his fragile ego and his thin skin that he was going to take massive offense to. And so I was ready when he, the phone rang and it said, you know, Michael, Mr. Trump would like to see you on my way, Rona. And I would go straight in and he would start in. Did you see what this asshole said? Right? He goes, you can't let him get up. Right? And so I'm I'm already on it, boss. And so on. I'll have a retraction. I'll have something done. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I had to play. Everything was always by right. ear. But, yeah, it was It was a job that used to rip your soul apart because I was exhausted emotionally even before I started my day. And I was the first, um, along with Alan Weissenberg, we were the two first people, first employees in the office every single day. And it was exhausting.
2: I remember there was there was a time when I was uh, I was guest hosting someone's show on a Friday night and then doing my own program on a Saturday morning. And this was before he descended the escalator and uh, somehow I'd said something that he found offensive and he for the first time tweeted negatively about me. I remember it because he said that Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN is wasting whatever money they're paying me. And my reaction was to think What is Donald? I know what I'm doing on a Friday night. Like I'm working my ass off and I'm trying to get a gig. What is Donald Trump doing watching a show like mine as a guest host on a Friday night? But I I, I figured out, I mean, this guy consumed, I guess, directly and through you. He consumed everything. It seems
1: like he never missed anything that was said about him at any time. I, I marveled at it. And here's the answer. Donald Trump really has no life outside of the persona that he tries to portray, right? Um, he doesn't go out because he has no friends. And I want you to think about that. And I wrote that in my book, Disloyal. I really want people to think about it for a second. How many friends do you have in your lifetime? And you'd say quite a few. How often do you go out with friends, um, you know, to dinner or have them over or whatever, right? Quite a few, Right. How many friends do you have from when you were five, six, ten years old, from elementary school, junior high school, right, high school, college, graduate school, etc.? A lot. He has none. Have you ever noticed that? Not one person has ever come out and said, oh, yeah, I was roommates with Donald Trump uh, at, you know, at University of Pennsylvania. Nobody ever says that. You never also see girls that turn around and come out of the closet and say, hey, you know, I dated Donald in high school or in college and so on. Not true. Donald is a loner, right? And it was very rare that he would ever go out or he would ever do anything. So what did he do? He set up, especially as he started to get political, because he loves the fucking attention. He needs that adulation. He needs to see his name on the front page of the newspaper like we need oxygen to breathe. And I say it often because it's true. Now, what ends up happening is he sets up three television sets in his bedroom. CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Click, click, click. Click, click, click. Click, click, click. click, Right? And hamburger, hamburger, hamburger. Right? And that's, that's just what it was. Right? He just would eat. And sit and watch television, which is why, you know, he has these crazy ideas and his, you know, and his ass is getting so big it wasn't fitting into the chair because you just can't sit there all day and all night watching. And he would write shit down. With his fucking sharpie on a piece of paper, and he would bring it in just so that he wouldn't forget the next day. Michael, you call Smirkanish and you ball his ass out. You fuck him up. You take care of him. (laughs) You know you cannot just let this go. This is an affront. It's an affront. You know, scream at him, threaten a lawsuit, call Zucker. You know, and and so and I'd be, oh my god, here we go again. You got it, boss. And then I would get a phone call from him. This is how sick that the man is. I get a phone call from him thirty minutes after that conversation. Michael, Mr. Trump would like to see you. All right, I'm on my way back in. Fortunately, my office was only like 25 feet from his. So I would go back in. Yep, yeah, knock, knock, right? Uh, what's up, boss? He goes, Did you call Zucker? I'm like, I left a message for him. Did you call Smirkanish? And I said, you know, I left a message for him too. What are you doing? Michael, you got, you got to fix this. And that's what would happen all day long. I would have to report. Then at 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock until it was finally done. So there was no escaping having an argument with you right and you know it now became my job or your job right and it and that's just how he played he played like a gladiator right he was like the he was the caesar and you and i were really gladiators battling it out for his you know for his amusement
2: so michael michael based on based on that whole thesis which i completely accept as truth how does it end if if and, and i always frame this issue for 2024 threefold. He has to be healthy because he is older. He he has to be uh, uh, unindicted and he has to be solvent. So assuming those three things are intact, can he walk away from the attention? Because the moment he says he's not running, he's done. So in the end, what do you think he does? He
1: hangs out till 2024. Keeping the grift going. Number one, taking all the whole time. whole time and take your three examples. One, he is not solvent and he will not be post the indictment. He will be indicted. He will be indicted. His company is already indicted. That creates all sorts of issues. And I went through it. The banks start calling you. They, you know, they start dropping you as a customer and they don't care about Trump. Trump is a peanut compared to, say, like a Capital One that has, you know, 50 trillion dollars under management right they don't care about any one individual and he's not going to run that's the that's the whole thing so it's all about the grift and continuing the grift because that's how he exists and that's how right now he's making his money believe it or not As more people get vaccinated, the summer travel season is starting to heat up. But watch out for pandemic-related travel scams, including fake airline tickets and accommodations booked online that may cause you to expose your personal information to cybercriminals. Don't trust unfamiliar sites when booking travel or deals too good to be true. We do a lot more online these days. Your information is out there, exposed. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take that info. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. We do a lot more online these days. Your information is out there, exposed. Unfortunately, cybercriminals are always looking for ways to take that info. The all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to have protection in the digital world. Device security helps block cybercriminals from stealing your personal information. VPN with bank rate encryption helps keep information you send over Wi-Fi safe. LifeLock Identity Theft Protection monitors your personal information and alerts you to potential threats. Now, no one could prevent all cybercrime and identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But if you have Norton 360 with Lifelock you can opt into cyber safety so sign up today and save 25 percent or more off your first year by going to norton.com/cohen that's 25 percent off Norton 360 with Lifelock at norton.com/ Cohen You know, Mike, I want to ask you this, because I've asked this question to another guest before. The sentiment coming from Trump and commentators like Tucker Carlson and Mo Brooks, two people I fucking despise, is that all their anger and violence was justified. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this. They all claim that their anger and and the violence, it's all justified. Now, they're arguing that the January 6th protesters were right to believe that they had been cheated out of power that they rightfully deserved. Now, they were right to believe that the government and the law were conspiring against them. This is what they believe. That they were right to believe that their opponents were capable of anything, even assassinating Trump. And the, the implication? That they themselves were equally entitled to go just as far. Now, with such messages being broadcast, should we be worried that Trump is setting the stage for more violence Right. We know August is coming up. And what point is there a legal obligation to stop what's happening with these sedition charges by our representatives?
2: Well, I note that nobody has been charged with those crimes. You know, I'm, I'm paying pretty close attention to what's going on with these federal cases against the people who were arrested in connect, in connection with January 6th. And it, it all seems like, and I'm not underestimating it, but to put it in terms you'll understand, like a garden variety of, of assault and trespassing charges. So those cases haven't been brought. I think they I think they're much stronger to be brought based on what he said on January sixth and what followed than whatever is taking place now, because I don't see the, the parallels in terms of his language, that August business of, of the my pillow guy and so forth, maybe I should be paying closer attention. I don't. I don't put much stock in it. I question Michael. If if your premise is that, and let's be fair, tens of thousands of people were there who did not go anywhere near the Capitol. Um, even those who went into the Capitol, did they show up? If I had had a beer with them the night before, the worst of the worst actors, and said, "What is the plan for tomorrow?" Would they have said we're going to break into the Capitol? And if so, I would then say, okay, you break into the Capitol, then what? Because to me, they look totally befuddled, like they had no clue of what the hell they were going to do when they got there. Even those who breached into the Senate chamber and had pictures taken and the guy with the horns and so forth, if they really wanted to disrupt that process, it seems to me they would have been squatters and they would have taken control of the Senate and just refused to leave. But they didn't do that. They they were there. They did some damage. They, uh, they were violent with law enforcement. And then it's like they were clueless and finally they left.
1: Yeah. But those that were there that didn't breach the Capitol, those are just spectators. These are the people that wanted to just be there. Maybe they had a grievance. Maybe not. Maybe they just wanted to have something to post on Facebook or Instagram or, you know, um, TikTok or something like that. You know, people do crazy things especially don't forget coming off of the pandemic right the covid where everybody has been bottled up i mean look at me i'm in 22 plus hours a day in my home when i go outside i just you know i just want to do something if i see that there's a race going on in central park shit in my jeans i just start running with them (laughs) why i don't know i'm just bored and and i just want i want something to happen around me so i know that i'm still alive you know those would be spectators. But then there were people that went there, hell-bent on creating real damage. There were those that went there to kill Mike Pence, Nancy Pelosi. Now, the question really becomes, what if hypothetically they got their hands on Nancy Pelosi? What if they got their hands on Mike Pence? Would they actually have killed them? That's a question that I really have not seen anybody ask or heard anybody ask or um, I've, there's no answer really to it. I would be, really be curious because we know that there were groups that showed up with firearms. We know that there were groups that showed up with zip ties. I mean, you're not bringing zip ties, right, in order to help to ensure Great. right things stay closed. You had people who showed up with bear spray and all other forms of, you know, of devices that cause damage. Serious? And this is the comment? Well, I think the following. I, I think that some of them, I don't know this.
2: I'm speculating, I think that some of them were motivated by an allegiance to Donald Trump or what they viewed Trump as being representative of. But I don't think that whatever it is we're going through now ends when Donald Trump is no longer the focal point. I look at Brexit as a milestone, as a global readjustment that's taking place. I happen to think that it's largely driven by shifting demographics and a number of individuals who are lost economically hurting, don't see where they and their families are going to come out on the other side. And if Trump, to your point, milks this for all it's worth and then ultimately doesn't run, and now we're beyond 2024, I think we're being naive if we think that this chapter of American history is over and we're all going to go back to the way things used to be.
1: I don't buy that at all. I don't buy it either. And I say consistently on this program, as well as on television and any of the media that asks me, my biggest fear is exactly what you just said. It's not over. There will be another Donald Trump, a Donald Trump 2.0, a better, smarter, richer, more sinister, believe it or not, Donald Trump that will use this insurrection As just a a stepping, it's it's a guide in how to actually do it right the next time. And that's my biggest fear. Because Trump laid a predicate for what you need to do in order to throw this country into chaos. And if you get somebody who's more determined. You see, the problem with Trump is Trump doesn't read. He's not educated. Despite that, he'll tell you he's got the biggest brain and the best words and he went to the best school, Wharton. He did not go to Wharton, by the way. Um, You know, he doesn't prepare. If there was actual preparation for what he was doing, I agree with you that this attack on the Capitol would have been very different. And it would have been organized. Instead, it was like everything Trump did. He shoots from the hip. And then he has other people try to do it for him. But here, there was nobody else that was prepared to do it. You had different little sections. Josh Hawley screaming. Don stupid ass junior screaming, right? You had um, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Ted Cruz screaming. But none of them were coordinated because they were all trying to be the center of attention themselves in order to play to a party of one. Right. Big daddy. Well, to him and to the constituency
2: that I identified earlier that keeps them in power by helping them win primary elections. I mean, this is my premise. It's no longer a legislative achievement. It's making yourself the equivalent of a political rock star, raising funds based on it and guaranteeing that you get to come back and fight another day. That's where we are.
1: Yep. The day they say the day after an individual wins the election for whatever race that they're running, they're out campaigning and trying to promote themselves on social media instead of working for it. It's, it's really disgraceful. So, Mike, I think Bill Kristol summoned up CPAC. We'll jump on that for a second. The best with his tweet yesterday. This weekend's confederacy of dunces was a window into what conservatism has become. There was, of course, no pushback from anyone in the GOP. Nearly every speaker assured the CPAC attendees that they were all victims and potential martyrs. What do you think it will take for the current GOP to abandon their suicide pact with this MAGA lunacy? Well, I think they're scared to death of the base. And they look
2: at CPAC, right? I think CPAC has outsized influence. By the way, I remember when I was in college, when I was in law school, I was a regular attendee of CPAC. I I went to seven or eight straight years of CPAC on Reagan's watch, and he came himself for a black tie dinner at the end all the years except the year that he was shot. And it had much more of an issue-oriented intellectual flair. It's transformed into something that's akin to the the Star Wars bar scene (laughs) for people who are on the right. And yet- You know, the media buys into and I'm guilty of this because I've talked on radio and I think I referenced on television how Donald Trump got 70 percent of CPAC attendees and Ron DeSantis was somewhere in the 20s, et cetera. And it becomes this self-perpetuating situation where now the buzz goes out that CPAC has determined that Trump is the front runner, um, to which I say, go go actually turn that camera around and see who, the, see who the people are in that room. And you might not take it as seriously what comes out of it. But there is, this, uh, there is this frightened nature of what the base will do, a perception that Trump is the ruler of the base, and that is what keeps everybody but the, the Liz Cheney's of the party, and there aren't many, lockstep, in fear of drawing the wrath. And it's, it's I think, been this way since the rise of the, the Tea Party. I mean, I, I remember when the, there was a, a, a Senate primary in, in uh, Delaware where Mike Castle, who was a solid guy in a middle of the road Republican, uh, running seemingly uh, an easy race for the U.S. Senate. And he got knocked off by Christine O'Donnell, uh, who was best known as being an advocate for witchcraft on Bill, on Bill Maher's shows. And that was sort of the holy shit moment for me <laughs> of, wow, I think it was 2010 of when I thought, oh my God, you know, something has changed here. And from that moment to where we are, and I would argue, by the way, if if I had more time to lay the whole theory out for you, that this has been building since Rush Limbaugh was put into national syndication uh, back in the 88 or thereabout cycle. But all of these things have now come full circle where it's no longer the Republican establishment, it's now the media establishment. I blame the the media infrastructure more than anything else for how we've been driven into this ditch. Yes, um, you know, dark money's a factor, gerrymandering's a factor, self sorting's a factor. I could list any number of things, but at the top, I always say it's, it's the media. I mean, say what you will about those personalities on Fox, uh, they are calling the shot for the GOP right now.
1: Yeah, they, they are. I'll tell you a funny story. I think it was 2011, that, that time of CPAC, when Donald was um, considering running against Barack Obama. Ultimately, we jumped out of it. I actually still have the letter, the original letter, um, where Trump uh, bails out because of The Apprentice and some properties that he bought. But I'll never forget, it. we were contacted by Dave Bossie to see if Donald wanted to show up. And he wasn't a legitimate contender at the time. And nobody knew whether he was or he wasn't. But they wanted Donald to speak at CPAC. And there was an article that came out the very next day that talked about how people were walking out of the room, that they weren't this. And now I was in the room and people were not walking out. The problem was it's very disorganized. It was being run by Dave Bossy. So it has to be a complete. Shit show, right? Uh, I mean, he's just—he's just what we call, you know, at least in Otisville, just a fucknut, right? I mean, nothing goes right with Dave Bossy. So anyway, they, they, he was so infuriated that they took a picture of the room that was like eighty percent, you know, um, vacant and people just sitting there, sort of looking around and. That picture was taken before he actually even came out. And then there was some issues with um, with a fire alarm or something like that. So he went crazy. And it wasn't just me at the time. It was me and George and Larry and Alan and this one and that one. Anybody that he can call into his room to get on the phone. And we needed to change the narrative because God forbid that Donald Trump should be speaking before a room, right, that was actually packed. To the, you know, to the rims, uh, and then there was an overflow room, and there's a photo there showing that it wasn't as populated, right? And this, he did the same, which is funny because I always say it's easier to understand Trump than people believe, and that's what my book was really about. Donald Trump is like history, it will always repeat itself at some point. So I kind of know what, was, what he was talking about when he was talking about the number of people that showed up to his inauguration. It's the same stupid-ass comment that he made with CPAC. And it just, everything that Donald Trump does, he's so, so myopic in anything that he thinks. It's always the same thing over and over. Well, how about a friend of mine who's a journalist said, you're not going to believe this. And he started taking photos and sending it to my, to my text. The gold Trump that somebody made, the number of stupid people that stood on a line 30, 40 minutes. You think you were in fucking Disneyland, right? Or at, or at seven, Six uh, Flags, whatever it's called, right? They were standing on line for 30, 40 minutes in order to take a photo with the gold Trump. I mean, I just find that to be comical. I remember. That's what CPAC has become. It's a joke. You know, I, I think a lot of the, uh, the allegiance to him is not, I
2: think that if many of the people who are supportive of him heard this conversation and were honest, they would acknowledge many of your criticisms. I don't, I don't sense that what goes on out there is based on this personal love or affinity for Donald Trump. You gotta keep in mind that I think what they most appreciate in Donald Trump is that he's their fighter. You know, I, I think it was Peter Wenner who said that they they love Trump because he brings a gun to a knife fight. And so they might not have personal. I mean, come on, two Corinthians. Do you think that evangelical Christians at that moment really thought that he was one of them? No way. But they knew that he was a guy who would go tangle with all the political forces that they hate. That he would fight with the Clintons. That he would fight with Hillary. That it would fight with Pelosi. That he would fight everything represented by Obama. And you know, you're you're the inside looking out, or at least you were me from the outside looking in. That's the way I've always assessed the situation. It's 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 like you know, you go to a uh, you go to an MMA, you go to a prize fight. And you don't really like one person that you're rooting for, but you hate the other guy. And consequently, you know, you pick your side based on what you're against and not necessarily what you're for. I think a lot of that is going on. You're
1: dead, you're dead right on that one. Donald Trump was a means to an end by a whole slew of people, evangelical included, that wanted to stack the courts, that they're obviously uh, anti-abortion, pro-right, uh, and so on, pro-life, and, and so on. And Donald was nothing more than a means to an end. The world is racing to get back to normal and start meeting up in person again. But after the year we've all had, getting back to feeling normal takes time. My journey back to the world started with being released from prison into home confinement. The only way I got through it was to prioritize my mental health and realize that it was going to take some time. If you're feeling overwhelmed by it all, you're not alone. It's important to find the support you need to face those feelings and move forward. We all talk to our friends when we're experiencing issues, but they don't always give the advice that we need. In my case, nothing they said related to what I was going through. Getting unbiased feedback and advice from a licensed professional can be refreshing and actually rewarding. When you're in a low point, you might feel alone. But over 50% of Americans struggle with their mental health. We all need help sometimes, and asking for support when you need it is actually a sign of strength. Talkspace makes it easy to match with a licensed therapist and schedule live video sessions, all from the comfort of your device. You can start messaging your therapist the same day that you sign up. Whether you're a parent, student, millennial, or just someone having a hard day, Talkspace can provide the support to help you feel better with a single message. Talkspace offers individual and couples therapy in addition to medication prescription services. Set goals with your therapist and they can help make sure that you're really progressing. Talkspace works around your schedule at your convenience. Send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the app. Schedule live video sessions with your licensed therapists from anywhere. Whether you're experiencing depression, anxiety, or other problems, Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform to help you sort through any issue. Thousands of licensed therapists are available for you to match with. Talkspace therapists are experts in dozens of specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more, to help you start feeling better today. So start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and get $100 off your first month with the promo code COEN. That's $100 off when you use promo code COEN at Talkspace.com. But I want to just keep moving forward here, Mike. Um, Philip Rucker and Carol Lenig's new book, I Alone Can Fix It, Show how top US military officer, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Miley, was so shaken that President Donald Trump and his allies might actually attempt a coup or take other dangerous or illegal measures after the November election that Miley and other top officials informally planned for different ways to stop Trump, including. Right. A plan to resign um, one by one rather than carry out the orders from Trump that they would consider to be illegal, dangerous or ill-advised. Now, Miley viewed Trump as an authoritarian leader with nothing to lose. And he drew parallels between him and Adolf Hitler's rhetoric as both victim and savior right? Calling January 6th a Reichstag moment. Now, I'm curious in your opinion, what you make of the drip drip of this incriminating news from these books, which show a far more dangerous and unhinged Donald Trump than people can fathom. So that book comes out on Tuesday, and I have not read in
2: advance. I don't have one, but I've read the excerpts, two lengthy excerpts, that the Washington Post has published so far, and, and CNN made a very big deal of this, and I was I was on talking about it. And what you just said was one of my reactions. It is um, it is evidence of how much we still don't know about what was going on behind closed doors. I, I'll tell you something funny. I um, I have. Uh, read most of the Woodward books over the years, and I have high regard for Bob Woodward. I don't have any relationship with him. I just respect his work. Robert Costa, formerly of the Washington Post, I guess he's taken a leave for the reason I'm about to tell you. He and young guy uh, grew up in the Philly burbs listening to me doing morning drive radio, and later we met, which I appreciated hearing from him. Woodward and Costa have teamed up to write a book about the behind the scenes of the final days. I think it comes out in September. And now with so many books coming out in the last couple of, of days, I'm wondering what's gonna be left on the bone for them. But it also, I think, underscores the need for a January 6 commission to try and get to the bottom of so many of the things that we still haven't been told. With regard to this book that you're talking about, the Rucker and, and Lennig book, um, one thought that I have is if the book had been published two weeks ago, would any of the people at CPAC have changed their vote for Donald Trump? I think not one. A second reaction that I have is that if the, the and remember now that the general was himself present at the uh, the June uh, of, of last year, I guess it was 2020, the June 2020 march across Lafayette Square, in uniform, He was there. So, too, was Bill Barr. So, you know, maybe he was trying to make up for that big error in judgment in being a part of that. The cynical question that I ask is that if he were so concerned about a coup, then how did January 6th happen? OK,
1: let like, me where were all these
2: institutional right, forces? Right.
1: And let me add to that point, because I, too have my suspicions with General Miley, with all due respect. And I give him all the credit and I thank him for his service. This is not an attack on him as a, as a, a member of the armed forces and so on. But I have a bigger problem. Why didn't he say something? It's easy now right. to come out and say, you know, like so many people do. Now all of a sudden, you know, they want, they want to what? Now they want their legacy to be changed like Bill Barr. Right. All of a sudden he he refused to go along with the you know, stopping of the vote. Therefore, he's somebody that is showing redemption or remorse for all the damage he's caused, not just individuals like myself, but the country. You know, there are two sections. Right. One is 28 U.S.C. 535 that investigations of crimes involving government officers and employees. It specifically states it specifically states that if you have knowledge as a government employee, you have an obligation to pass it on. You just can't sit with it and say, okay, well, I'm going to resign, right? If this is happening, I'm not going to push the nuclear button. I'm not going to give them my key code. That's bullshit. And I'm not buying it for a second. And then there's the um, the code of, um, what do you call it? federal regulations. I think it's under like 5 uh, CFR 2635 um 101, 101. It's basis of obligations of a public service i'm not i looked this up afterwards because it really bothered me that all of a sudden this guy is coming out and he's like well you know i would have i would have stopped it i wouldn't have gone along with it i what are you talking about if i turn around and tell you that i'm going and i'm going to commit murder you have an obligation to tell the police that this person is going to do something and it's not like oh I'm going to take a Tootsie Roll, you know, out of the uh, Dylan's candy shop, right? Just don't tell anybody, as if anybody cares, or it hasn't been done a billion and one times, right? This is something serious. This is something that undermines our entire Constitution and the democracy of this country. And yet he said nothing, absolutely nothing. So I can't give him a pass on that one, right? And now I think what it does is, personally, I think it taints the book. At least it taints it for me, because now when I read the book, I'm going to be reading it from the perspective that half of this shit like John Bolton's book is just not really accurate. It's a conflation of multiple things and maybe even it's um what they would like to have done. You know, maybe he needed, right, to resign. Right? Maybe he needed to come forward like a reality winner did, right? And and you know, blow the whole thing up as a whistleblower. That's what he should have done. Don't sit back. Well, maybe, maybe, well, maybe, maybe you've explained why. I mean, because it was a reaction to the
2: way in which history was going to regard him for the march across Lafayette Square when President Trump pulled out that Bible, didn't seem to know what he wanted to do with it, but walked over to St. John's Church after they cleared the park of all of that unrest. He obviously spoke for the record. There are so many of his direct quotes that are in it. And from the two chapters that I've read, which is the only part I can get access to, he's the hero of the story. Um, But I thought some of the same things that you thought in terms of if it were this bad and he fears a coup, then where was the action on January 6th? And you, I'm sure, saw that vignette from the inauguration where, according to his telling, uh, Kamala Harris now being sworn in as vice president, uh, greets him and says, "We, we all know what you've done for the country or words to that effect it it seemed rather self congratulatory
1: yeah and by the way it wasn't a bible he was holding up it was um dictatorship for dummies you know when he was there in Lafayette <laughs> square <laughs> rest assured you know donald trump donald trump doesn't have a bible he's never opened it and he doesn't even not even you know been, how to spell it have you been it. in
2: his have you been in his company Do you expect to ever be in his company
1: again? And what would that moment look like if you were? Wow. So the answer is no. Um, I've had other guests ask me if you bumped into him. I almost bumped into Jared yesterday. He was in the building. And last week, I live in the same building as Jared and Ivanka. Um, that's when, of course, they're not, that's when they're not in Florida, right? Um, we almost bumped into Ivanka when she was here. I have no issues. If I bump into him, I'll look him straight into the face and say, you're really a fucking piece of shit. There's nothing else that I could possibly say. Fuck you. Right. And you're going to get what you deserve. Right. I'm not the one who had the affair with the porn star. He did. I'm not the one who decided to take $130,000 and to pay it because he didn't want to leave a trail. I did it at the direction of and for the benefit of my boss. I was asked to do it. I had the money to do it. It was no issue. I went ahead and I did it. And yet, I become the villain of his story. And that, for me, early on, it's not after the fact. I actually started speaking even before the indictment and before the, the raid. However, What I tried to do is I tried to stay loyal. Why? Because Donald Trump embraced me. He called me like right after the raid. Don't you worry. We have you. You know, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. This is ridiculous. It's the witch hunt. It's it's simply the Democrats trying to come after us. You know, stay strong. You know, you're you're part of the team. And then we created a, a joint defense agreement. But lo and behold, while we're creating the joint defense agreement. Trump and Kushner and the rest of them, Seculo and Rudy and whoever other idiots he had, you know, sitting there guiding him said, no, no, we need to use Cohen and he needs to be the fall guy. We have to stop this whole Russia collusion delusion. We have to stop X, Y and Z. And he fits the box. Right. So let's just stop. Let's not pay for anything Let's use whatever documents that we have from the joint defense agreement and let's kick it out to our media sources. And let's continue to paint a very negative picture that Cohen is a is a convicted liar. Right. What's funny is, as I said to so many of the Republicans when they were lambasting me at the House Oversight Committee hearing. Not one of you have asked me a single question about Donald Trump All you keep talking to me is that the fact that I lied to Congress, by the way. Something that I have, you know, also explained. Trump was involved in the writing of that. Ivanka, Jared, Sekulo and a handful of other lawyers, right, that represented Ivanka and Jared and, and and others. They were all involved in the writing of that statement that I gave to Congress that was inaccurate. And I do also just want to say, the inaccuracy that I was charged for was the fact that I didn't speak to Donald three times about the failed Trump Tower Moscow project. I spoke to him 10 times. That's the big lie. But what Donald is so good at is labeling people, right? Like what he did to, you know, Hillary Clinton, like what he did to Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, uh, Jeb Bush, right? He's really good at labeling people. And then people start calling you the convicted liar, but they don't even know what it is that I lied about. What I lied about, he was involved with, it was done once again at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. And he's doing it to Rudy now, and he's doing it to Alan Weisselberg now. And again, like I said to you a few minutes ago, history with Donald Trump always repeats itself.
2: But it sounds like that, I have to say, it sounds like it's not that you had an epiphany, it's that he threw you under the bus,
1: and that if he hadn't thrown you under the bus, you'd still be inside the tent. <sighs> You know, the answer is I would not be where I'm at right now. Um, would I be inside the tent? I'm not 100% sure I can answer that as an affirmative. I certainly would not be where I'm at right now, which is exposing Donald Trump for who he truly is, right? The 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 wizard behind the uh, the sheets. I don't know where I would be, but all I can tell you is that I feel pretty good right now and I feel better now than I have in a long time. And I'm going to continue to do anything and everything that I can to ensure that he's held responsible. And it will be like the first time in his life that he is held responsible for his own dirty deeds. Because I said it to George Stephanopoulos, even I think before the raid or right after the raid, I will not be a punching bag for anybody's defense. Nor will I be the villain of donald trump 's story i 'm not the villain of his story. I was just the collateral damage
2: does does he treat Alan Weiselberg similarly as collateral damage? Does Weiselberg
1: ultimately flip on him so i I, I hate the word flip i 'm going to use you know um, he's going to all right we'll use the word flip <laughs> Alan, Alan, will ultimately flip because exactly what Donald did to me, I already see the writing on the wall. Um, he is going to do the same thing to Alan Weiselberg. The only difference is that there's also Barry Weiselberg, his son, who has liability potentially. Jack, his other son, and he's not going to risk his freedom and his children's freedom uh, for for Donald. And especially once Donald starts pushing Alan under the bus and Alan starts to see the writing on the wall, it's going to take Take time for Alan to understand it. It took me time too. But Alan will ultimately have a front row seat to everything that I experienced. But you know, Mike, as we're rounding down the hour, I have one last question for you, right? Because I I like to switch gears on this one. If you would, discuss what you called... And I quote, the politics of painting and this entire episode where Hunter Biden is selling his art to unknown buyers for (laughs) unknown disclosed amounts. while I want to give President Biden the benefit of the doubt that he's a decent and he's an ethical um, man. The optics of this are really freaking terrible. I mean, not to mention the opening. It gives all of the crazies to levy charges against Hunter Biden. What do you think he allowed? I mean, why do you think he allowed this to happen? And what do you think is going on here? I think that they,
2: the White House has handled this in the complete opposite of the way it should be handled. Hunter Biden... Deserves to earn a living. I, you know, I, I wish him well. And if and if he's a decent painter and he can sell his paintings, you know, Godspeed, go sell your paintings. But the idea that a New York or any other gallery owner is going to be charged with policing the way this happens, and that the public is supposed to trust the gallery owner to keep secret from Hunter the identity of the the purchaser. Uh, is to me ridiculous. I mean, what if Michael Cohen is the high bidder for a hunter acrylic and you hang it in that building of yours that you share with Ivanka and Jarrett and maybe you invite me to come over and I now see it on the wall and I walk out of your party and I tell people Michael Cohen is the one who bought the... You could never keep under wraps in that scenario who bought the painting. And so the opposite should be true. Just let the sunshine in, let the process play out as it normally would. And for not the least of which reason, if you attempt to keep it under wraps, all you're doing is giving a loop to Fox and every opponent of the Biden White House to speculate who really bought it. Oh, it was the Chinese. No, it was a Russian oligarch. No, it was somebody from Ukraine, etc. And it and it will
1: just have a life all its own. Yeah. And I'm curious, you know, as we're just finishing How did they resolve something like that? Because you're right. Hunter's entitled to make a living. I mean, I'm not so sure that he was a painter before. He clearly has a talent. I mean, I saw one of the pieces of art. Um, I don't know if I would pay a half a million dollars for it. But at the same point in time, you're right. He's entitled to earn a living. Um, And who am I to tell him in in what arena he should make that? But my father's not the president of the United States of America. Right. And I think that there has to just be, as you said, some transparency here so that Tucker Carlson and Fox News and those, you know, uh, Trump sycophantic followers don't already start speculating that it's Russia, right? They need to get rid of the Magnitsky Act or it's China and that they're going to be, you know, dumping more product on the United States and, you know, uh, creating uh, unfair trade wars. I mean, this is what you're already beginning to hear percolating under, you know, um, under the breath of individuals that this is all big, one big giant Donald Trump grift. Right. I mean, I think Hunter Biden. Oh, yeah.
2: And it's got it's got it's got all the elements and it even and it even has, you know, the art, which you if you're doing it on television, that you can continue to display and put up old pictures of of Hunter, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. To answer your question, I I don't know who could have blessed this as the solution. I I thought that there were smarter political minds in the White House that would have said, no, this is not how we're going to
1: handle it. This is just going to get us in more trouble. Yeah, I agree. Well, Mike, let me thank you so much for your time, for your insight, for your wisdom. And um, I certainly look forward to seeing you soon uh, and having you back here on Mea Culpa in the future. There's so much going on. There's so much to talk about. I
2: wish you all good things. I wish you all good things with the podcast. This was fun, and uh, I will see
1: you soon. I look forward to it. Thank you, Michael. And now for today's Mea Culpa. In thinking about my conversation with Michael Smirkanish, I am struck by something he said during the interview. When discussing when he thought this current MAGA fever would break and the GOP would return to a place of sanity... Smirkanish reminded me that the base is what has become truly radicalized. The politicians themselves. Well, they are politicians, which is a charitable way of saying they are morally fucking bankrupt and largely full of shit and will follow their voters down whatever fucking rabbit hole seems the most appealing. But yes, at the crux of the issue is a problem of hearts and minds, as they used to say during the Vietnam War. We must ask ourselves... What is it that is so appealing about this radical MAGA message that it has so quickly overtaken the modern GOP? I'm not going to do a deconstruction of lower middle class white voters and why they continue to vote against their own self-interest to support a racist madman, but it's an important question and lies at the heart of Trump and his continued MAGA appeal. That said, Simply saying I stand for whatever my voters stand for is a moral cop-out of staggering dimensions. At some point, a leader must lead and stand for something beyond the wisdom of the crowd. But that is a lot to ask when we live in an era that rewards the loudest and the meanest. There is little room for eloquence or subtlety. Instead, arguments must be fought in one. Last week, President Biden delivered a beautiful speech outlining the dangers posed by this authoritarian push against voters' rights, asking the GOP, have you no shame? It will be remembered as pivotal amount in the Biden presidency when he seemed to at last awaken to the dangers posed by this MAGA putsch. My only worry, though, is that despite the grand eloquence of the speech, it seemed almost quaint, A throwback to an earlier era when politics was a gentleman's sport instead of a blood sport, and reason and courtesy were part of the political norm. Unless there is real urgency behind those words, backed up with action and the willingness to do something truly bold, like end the filibuster, that speech will be nothing more than a speech, empty words to a crowd. But we've long passed the point of no return. Trump is playing for keeps. His politics has become blood sport. We need to start matching him punch for punch. The only way out of this is through the ballot box. Just win, baby. That should be the new Democratic mantra. Until then, we're doomed to just slug it out. And thanks for listening.
0: Looking for a killer entertainment deal? What's better than free TV? Pluto TV is the home for true crime lovers. Watch 24-7 channels of unsolved mysteries, cold case files, forensic files, and CSI, plus thousands of criminally good movies, TV shows, and documentaries all for free. No sign-ups, no fees, no contracts ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device.
2: Hey, movie lovers, who needs a theater when you have Pluto TV? Grab your popcorn and your streaming device because free movies are here. Pluto TV is your home for movies. Great movies are playing anytime in over 20 exclusive movie channels of action, horror, rom-coms, and more. Watch hits like Saving Private Ryan, Pretty in Pink, and Charlie's Angels
1: all for free. No sign-ups, no fees, no contracts. Ever. Download the free Pluto TV app on any device. Maya Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level.